It is amazing how rapidly a week goes past, and we're in Thursday night. I think that's the way it is, and we welcome you to this meeting again this evening, and it's a joy to see everyone that has come. And I don't know what sacrifices you may have had to make in order to be here, but the Lord bless you for coming. And uh, I just thought we'd sing a few stanzas of a hymn that, by memory, that we maybe tie together what we've been looking at so far and prepare us for our hearts for tonight. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Shall we sing that together tonight? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home before the hills in order stood or earth received her frame from everlasting thou art God through endless years the same a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening God, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be Thou our God while life shall last and our eternal home. I can well believe that somebody has thought why all these messages on God when are we going to hear about Jesus Christ? Why so much emphasis on God the Father? Why so much emphasis on the Creator God? Why so much emphasis on God? Now, no one has said that to me. First thing that I would say and answer that question is that there's maybe too much emphasis on man. Our response, what we're supposed to do, what we do, how we live, what's for us. And it's good to pause a while and think more about God. That is the foundation and the source and the truth and the anchor and the eternity. And the sovereignty and the infinity, that is where life comes from, and that is where it all begins, and that's where the law of God comes from, and that's what Jesus Christ came to explain to us and live it out before us. And that's why he came to do the will of his Father, and we're not going to be able to do what Jesus did if we don't know the Father. 
And so when we know God, we have eternal life. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, and we'll get into that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm not sure if this is the last of this kind of messages that I'll bring this week or not, but we have one more here that I felt today to prepare for this evening. I have thoughts here that I never share with anybody anywhere. This is not something that came out of the freezer or off the canning shelves. It was prepared for today. Like us to open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter six. I'm going to say a few things about the book of Deuteronomy before I start this message. Certainly very, very unique among the books of the Bible, very unique among the books of the Old Testament, very unique among the books of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the five books that Moses wrote. Penta means five, the five books of Moses. The name Deuteronomy means second law, not in the sense that it replaced the first one, second law. Deuteronomy means that. Not in the sense to replace the first one, but because it is here presented in a different manner from the first one. And for a different purpose from the first one. In one sense, this book of Deuteronomy represents for Moses a second chance. A second chance to reach a new generation. The first generation had died in the wilderness. The book of Numbers is a mortuary. They just buried many, many hundreds of thousands of people in that book of Deuteronomy, or Numbers. And now we have a generation of younger ones who has grown up and have seen the death and dug the graves and helped to bury all, the, all of them. Some were the ground opened up and swallowed. But this book is different because we have these young people, these, this younger generation before us here, and Moses has another opportunity to present a law to them. A law like he presented the first time, but again from a different heart. Moses, a very different man today from what he was then. Though he was always the meekest of men and knew God face to face and walked with him and talked with him. There's a change in this Moses over what he had been before. He is far more of a pastor heart. And he's more careful in what he says. And more careful in the way he says it. Than what he was before. It rises from the burden of his heart. It's interesting that in this book of Deuteronomy. He calls upon both parents and grandparents. To teach those children and those grandchildren. Teach your children. And your children's children. Now you teach your children when you're a parent. And you teach your children's children when you're a grandparent. And when that happens, every generation of children has two older generations teaching them. Their parents teaching them, their grandparents teaching them. And of course, as we heard earlier this week, any amount of good teaching without a life to match it could very well be counterproductive. We want to be careful about that. 
Some people have said that this book of Deuteronomy is the favorite book of our Lord Jesus. For he quoted from it quite often during his ministry. And even though the law of God is held in high honor and is to be carefully obeyed, it is rehearsed here in light of the Jehovah God who gave it. And so, though the law is important, it takes us right back to God. And as Moses gives this law to this new generation, he continually refers them to the God who gave them this law. And he makes the whole thing very, very clear that your effectiveness and faithfulness in keeping this law will depend completely upon your relationship with God. And so he starts off that way, urging them to develop a faith and a trust in God. And from there, live out this experience that we're asking you to carefully obey. We learn in this book much about the God of the Bible and about how the pilgrim people should relate to this holy and righteous God. I'm going to simply title this message tonight, for those who take some notes of what they hear, The God of Deuteronomy. We want to move tonight from the God of this record that we have here in this book to the law that he established, and then to what that might mean for us practically as we live holy lives together here on earth in our churches. That's what I'd like to do. I'd ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'd like to read a few verses here, verses 4 and 5. Would you look at those verses? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This is called in the Hebrew language the Shema. It's a very, very special prayer. Words that are very sacredly said, carefully repeated among the Jewish people. The Shema. And we have here in these words what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Or the greatest of commandments. And all other commandments and all the ways that we live depend upon this. And anything you're doing tonight because you're a Christian, anything your church is asking of you or you've agreed upon together to do as a congregation, must be based upon this. This is the reason why we do it. This is our motivation. This is the foundation for it. It's that this is before God that we do this. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart. With all of our soul and with all of our might. And I don't know anyone who's... I don't know anyone who's... All of my mind. All that it's thinking and all that it's doing is because of its love to God. All of my mind, all of my strength. Young men glory in their strength. They arm wrestle. They do anything to prove how strong they are. All of my might for God because of my love to God. There, there are very, very few people who stand up tonight and say. All of my might is for God. But this is the greatest of all commandments. 
explains to us how different life is for us when we see God in all that we're doing. When God is the first cause, when God is the first reason, when my responsibility to God is what calls my attention to what I'm now doing. And I see more than the law. I see the God of the law. I see more than what I'm asked to do. And the more than the practice I'm carrying out, I see a holy reason for it. The young man told me that he kind of has this habit. I forget what you people call it in Pennsylvania. When you get to a stop sign, instead of stopping, you, you stop it, you kind of slide right on through it. It's called a California something. I don't know what you call it. You, you know the name for it. You young fellows do. He said, he said, really? He said, I ought to quit that. And, and maybe if there would be a, a patrol car someplace near the intersection, it wouldn't be so hard to use the brake and get that car to stop so that the bumpers dropped down in the back when that car came to a complete stop and then pull out again. But thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And a person who has this relationship with the Lord, and, and how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God, that, that person has, has had a tremendous advance in his understanding of the holy, when he knows God in that way. And many people don't see God. They don't see the invisible God. They're not in the presence of God. They're not in the presence of the Holy One, as Isaiah was. And this is the reason Christ gives us. This is the reason why Christ did it the way he did it. When you see how he responded in life to all the circumstances, those interruptions that came, and those taunting and tempting trickeries that came against him, trying to trap him in his words, and how he answered so very carefully and wisely. His father, he loved his father. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, and the volume of the book is written to me, to do thy will, O God. That's why he came. And that was the motive of his heart. And that motive is supreme. And will produce a holy response in all of us. Now, there's another thing we have here in these verses that I've read. If this is the greatest of all commandments, what we just read here, then it is obviously a call to each of us to obey that command, to live in obedience to that. If this is a commandment, then we are to do it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And until that has happened, trying to obey commandments is a... Is a frustrating exercise in legalism. I, I've got to do this. I don't want to do this. Why must I do this? Isn't there church someplace where I don't have to do this? And God's not in the picture at all. God is not close by. God is not in charge. God is not controlling my heart. Isn't there a way we can get out of this? Can't we change this? Let's call the elders together and have a brother's meeting Can't we knock this thing off the record? What's wrong? What is wrong? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I've never been able to understand how people can become more and more spiritual and more and more like the world at the same time. That has never made any sense to me. I can't figure that out, how we do that. Holier, more spiritual, uh, more, more alive unto God, more quickened by His Spirit, and more like the world. 
I have not been able to put that together. There's a call here to obedience. Chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. To keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day, for thy good. For thy good. Beautiful words here. This, this, the fourth chapter in Deuteronomy is a very interesting chapter. Would you just turn back there? It's kind of a long chapter. If you notice there, it's got 49 verses, uses up several pages of your Bible. That chapter is somewhat of a summary chapter of the entire book of Deuteronomy. It explains almost everything in a small summary form of all the content of the book of Deuteronomy and also the unique spirit of the book of Deuteronomy. For example, I told you that in the Shema, in this chapter 6 that we read, Moses was telling the people that he wants the parents and the grandparents to teach the children. That first idea first comes up in Deuteronomy in chapter 4. It is in there. And he, this, this holy character of God is reflected in this chapter 4, verse 29. Let's look at it. But if thou, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. We have this expression time after time in this book. Chapter 4. It's a beautiful, a beautiful record there. Verse 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall diminish aught from it, that it may keep, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Verse 6. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation, look at verse 7, is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is, in all things that we call upon him for? There's prayer. That's that. We can apply that to the church tonight. Certainly we can. Your congregation, the rest of the people look at you as you come and go in your place and, and your communities. And they say, what congregation is like that? Who has a God like that? There, there are beautiful thoughts here. It's in verse 9 where he suggests that we should teach this to our sons and to our sons' sons. Children and grandchildren. Verse 13 says, And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Verse 24, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. That's found in the book of Hebrews. Verse 29, I've already read to you. When you move into chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we find there the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting, some of the different things he says about those Ten Commandments Hear from what he said in Exodus 20 when he gave those Ten Commandments the first time. We won't look at that tonight specifically. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's exacting. It's converting. It's unchanging. It reflects the holy character of God. And verse 29 now in chapter 5 is a beautiful and powerful verse. And God is speaking here. The God of the Bible is speaking. 
Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God's heart, that there would be this heart in them, there would be this relationship with me in them. We would be together in what we're doing. We would share the burden and the, and the desire to be this holy people of God in the earth and be that way together. It's what he's saying here. I'll just mention this point. The word life that's found in the book of Deuteronomy many, many times. Oftentimes it's physical. It's talking about length of days. It's talking about actual existence on the earth. It's talking about physical life. But there are verses that refer to life in a spiritual sense. Obedience here in this book of Deuteronomy seems to promise physical blessing. But there's also a spiritual promise here as well. And we read that in the Shema. That's repeated several times. Chapter 11, verse 1. I'll just read this to you. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge. And his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. That was verse 1. Verse 13. It's come to pass... If you shall hearken diligently on to my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you, and then it tells you there, those blessings that are coming. Verse 22 says, For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave to him, then again, he's telling them how they're going to be living and, and be noticed by the rest of the nations. Chapter 7. Verses 6 to 11. The God of Deuteronomy. I'd like to read these few verses to you. Notice what it says. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep his oath which he swore unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and rendered, redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the reason why God did it. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them, that love him and keep his commandments into a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to the face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. God is faithful. God loves. God has chosen us. These verses say that. And these are New Testament themes. We have that there also. Chapter 8, verse 2. The God of Deuteronomy. Follow along and we'll soon get down to uh, something practical here. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. What powerful and beautiful verses. Thy raiment waxed not old. Upon thee neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore keep 
Thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The gift of manna was a testing ground for the children of Israel. To see whether they would be obedient by faith or not be obedient by faith. He gave them three rules there concerning the manna. You remember that. They were supposed to gather enough for one day, not extra. Extra manna, bread, worms. On the, on the Sabbath day, they were to gather nothing. The day before the Sabbath, they were gathered twice as much. If they gathered twice as much, it would last for two days. There'd be no worms. It'd be very good food the whole, through the whole process. And they disobeyed every time. Here's something out the Sabbath day trying to find manna. God wanted to see if they obey and do it by faith. And they just could not do that. You and I can do that. We can choose to do that. And I just pause here long enough to say, dear daddies and mothers, that the, probably the greatest gift that you can give your children, and whatever inheritance you plan to leave with them, I do not know. And what your financial capabilities are to provide for your children, buy them each a pickup truck, and, and get them set up in a dairy farm, I don't know what your capacities are. But the father and mother... Who have taught their children to obey. The first time they speak. In a kind and gracious way. Speak to those children. And they can obey. I don't know of a greater gift you can give your children. Than to teach them to accept and understand and appreciate. To be satisfied with. To be content with. A yes or a no. Yes, please do this. Today not. Tremendous blessing. I'll just say this. Some of you have heard this before. The greatest qualification for a missionary serving anywhere in any part of the world, the number one qualification for a missionary is this, that he or she can hear a no when they wanted to hear a yes and can bow their heart and sing the doxology and be content with it, and resist it in absolutely no way at all, and in perfect peace, accept the conditions that they never would have chosen, but it's the way that it is. The person who can do that is going to be a fine missionary, and the other one is going to have intense trouble today or tomorrow. With others, it will not work. A surrendered life. And God has chosen these circumstances, and we have not. And he allowed it to turn out like this, and we did not. And you made all that trip, all those hours to the Central Valley to go to the government station there to get your paperwork done. And you finally waited that long line, get up front of the counter and found out. We're closing early today. Uh, we're shutting down at 3 o'clock. Come back tomorrow. Or you go up to the counter and find out that the computers are down. No, no, nothing's being done here today. And it's several hours back home again and try it again some other day. If you can't accept that, you just say, well, that's just fine. Get yourself a cup of coffee, enjoy a sandwich, and a ride back home. I know how difficult that is. It's happened many, many times to me. You can't stand the mud. You can't stand the rain. You can't stand the stunning those little children standing in the cart behind the tractor on the way to church, and they tramp on your black, shiny shoes with their muddy boots. And you look at that, and the next one rubs up against your white shirt, and you see got streaks all down the front of it, and you're supposed to preach up front there that morning. And there's no washing machine between here and there. Amen.
Amen. If we can accept that, uh, then, then I guess like they say in Pennsylvania, stay in your comfort zone. It's a qualification. Those of you as fathers and mothers who have taught your children how to obey the greatest of gifts. And I know it's like to have a little girl and she wants to do something, but she had her heart set on it. She just was hoping daddy and mama would say yes, but, but, but daddy and mother were not able to say yes on that occasion. And, and, and I, 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 I permit this. I permit this. I, I would like you to permit it. I permit this. I see those little tears coming down her the face, but it, it, it's, it's all right, daddy. That'd be all right, Daddy. That'd be all right. And the tears coming down the face. That's okay. Those tears are all right. When you get your children to that place in life, it's a tremendous blessing you'll have. You'll have a reward for the rest of your days. There won't be this fighting in the church. There won't be this contest with what is being asked of me. I've learned to obey. What kind of a daddy must you be to have that commanding influence over your children. What kind of a daddy must you be to have the hearts of your children like that? What kind of a God must God be to ask this of us? What kind of a God must that be? And so this manna was a testing ground. Chapter 8 ends with a, a concern from God. A concern about the possible threat of material prosperity and what effect that might have with God's pilgrim people. God understands that there's a threat there, and He is concerned about that, mentions it. Chapter 9, verse 3. Understand therefore this day, the Lord thy God is He which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, He shall destroy them, and He shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out, and Destroy them quickly as the Lord thy God, the Lord hath said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart after the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God hath that drive them out from before thee, that he may perform the word which the Lord swore unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. For thou art a stiff-necked people. God is very concerned here. Verse 10. The Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Today it's not on stone that God writes. He writes on the heart. It's interesting to me that God did something. He took those tablets of stone. He wrote on there once with his finger. It was broken. He did it again. He wrote the whole thing out again on another set of stones. And I think of this Tanya that I spoke to you about the other night. And she had the law of God written in her heart. I remember so very well her conversion. And how, how beautiful her testimony was. It was that way for a long, long time. And, and then something happened. 
And I won't go into that. And she fell away. And then God came back to her before she passed away. And wrote with his finger upon the tables of her heart the second time the law of God. This might startle you if I tell you this. And here's a girl dying of cancer. And here's a girl that has no, not a one hair on her head. And here's a girl that cannot talk. You cannot audibly hear her voice or hardly can. And she's very, very weak. And her aunts, her mother's sisters, are not godly women in any kind of a way. And they come to the bedside to see her. And she has this law of God written in her heart. And here's what she says. She says to these aunts of hers, would you please, would you please peel all this paint off my fingernails and off my toenails? I don't want to be in a casket like that. Take, take all that off. She has somebody to take her earrings out of her ears and take her fing- rings off of her fingers. God was doing something in her heart. God was writing something. There she was in a weak condition, and there she was in serious, a serious state of, right before she died, she wanted all these things done. Because God writes on hearts. This God writes on hearts. So today it's not on stone. And will you allow him Dear person that I don't know, maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you have stepped away from the Lord. I don't know what happened in your life. I heard today a tragic story of a young man. And I suppose he was discouraged by some things that were happening in his congregation. I don't know what all happened there. And he took a very, very wrong turn in life. And he left a father and mother grieving for what he has done. That has happened so many times. And maybe you're one of those tonight. And the law of God is gone. And he comes again tonight. He'll come and write that on your heart. And change your life. And give you a new purpose and desire. And you'll love to do the thing you hated to do. And you'll appreciate the opportunity to serve the God that you turned your back towards. And he'll he'll call you just as you are tonight. I ask you to consider allowing God to write his word upon your life tonight. Chapter 10, one of the most powerful chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. May I pause here just a moment? I read verses 12 and 13 before. May I read them again to call something to your attention that I did not say before? Now, therefore, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord with thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good For thy good. The Spanish Bible says that that you would prosper. Is what it says in Spanish. It's for your good. It will go well with you if you do it. It's for our good. And every command of God is that way. It's, it's, It's not to deprive us. It's not to limit us. It's not so we cannot enjoy what this world is doing all around us. It's not so that we are somehow other oddballs in the society. It's for our good. 
And not only is it for our good, but the society that notices us, and the culture, the people around us that know us, they are aware of the blessing that is to our lives. Even Costa Rican people come to me. They don't do it the way we do it. They come to me and they say, the difference between you and the we, and, and you and and us is this: that we we believe and don't do, but 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 you believe and do. And they know it's a blessing. And they want us to do it. They'd be disappointed if we wouldn't do it. It's for our good. I don't know of anything that God has ever asked anyone to do, but what it was for his good. And for the good of your family, for the good of your offspring. Verse 16 in this chapter. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. That's a, that's a New Testament concept there. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, a ter- and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, and giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. These are very, very beautiful words. Thou, there, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. Jesus quoted that in his temptation. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things, which thine eyes have seen thy fathers went down to Egypt, with threescore and ten persons. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven. For multitude, a lofty view of God in this chapter. And I'd like to take you yet to chapter 30. If you don't know the book of Deuteronomy, I'd like you to learn a little bit about it tonight. Chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Verses 19 and 20. The same chapter 30. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That both thou and thy seed may live. That thou mayest love the Lord thy God. And that thou mayest obey his voice. And that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life. And the length of thy days. That thou mayest dwell in the lambs. And the Lord swear unto thy fathers. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. To give them. And we read last night. He that the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. First John chapter 5 and verse 12. He is thy life. Plead to him. He is thy life. Chapter 32, verses 45. And Moses made an end of speaking all the words of, to all of Israel. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law, for it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it. So we have here the fear of God. We have here faith in God. We have here service to God. We have here the worship of the high God in this book of Deuteronomy. Now I'm going to ask you a strange question. I read all that. Here's the question. This question will startle you. But I just want to encourage you. 
with this question. Is the God of Deuteronomy a liberal or a conservative? Now, why do I ask such a question? I ask this question because we become like the God that we worship. And our concept of God is so important that, that we, we, we will become like the God that we understand that He is. And the other night I used several examples of concepts that people have of God that are equivocados, that are mistaken. They have a wrong concept of God. And we're reading these verses so we get a right understanding of God. And you, you get a good understanding of God by reading the Old Testament. And then you come to the New Testament and Jesus comes and you see what that meant. You see then how, how our God really is when Jesus lived it out. And he did that because he was the son of God. And when we become converted, become children of God, that's the way we are. And as Jesus obeyed his father, we heard it tonight, read it. And as we hear his words and give his words and speak his words and do those things which please him, we do it for the same reason Jesus did. We have the same relationship with God, the father, and we want to please him. And what we're doing, we love him. Until we have that foundation in our lives. We, we, we are, we're on thin ice. With a Christian experience. Now is God liberal or conservative? And we shouldn't use the words liberal and conservative. But I'm using them because I know that you know what they mean. But I'm going to give you a little clearer understanding of what those two words mean. If I can. So we can apply them to God. Are you ready to go on this journey? You have to think a little bit. It won't hurt you to think. You have to think. A liberal. A person who is permissive and accommodating. He does not have any strict adherence to an established norm. He favors reform and progress. He is promoting change. He's glad to see it be different. He knows that that's the way some do it, but he's ready to try a new experiment. Permissive in seeing other people do it. And accommodating in doing it himself. That's a liberal. A conservative. One who is preserving established institutions. Limiting change. Close relationship in his life between principles and their practice. One who protects positions. You see there, a person who is preserving, protecting, carefully guarding, being concerned about where we will be and what we will be if we change things. That's a conservative. And you, uh, I could ask you, would you rather be a liberal or a conservative? I want you to just think about that a little bit. I'll give you some examples of this. If you go to the New Testament and study the various groups of people you have there among the Jews, the Pharisees were conservatives. They were trying hard to preserve the established Jewish customs, especially in light of the encroaching influences of Hellenism, which was the Greek influence that the Romans adapted and brought into that Jewish culture. And they resisted that. The emphasis on individualism, the emphasis on democracy. The emphasis on the, the high view of the body and of the individual. That Greek influence. The, the Pharisees were against that. 
And they went back to the God of the Bible. They went back to the Hebrew God. They went back to that. And they wanted to preserve that. And they, and they were, you can call them traditionalists if you want to, but they were trying to preserve something that was being encroached upon and dangerously undermined. And the Sadducees were the opposite. They were ready to go for gung-ho. They were in harmony with the Roman government. It was the Sadducees that were mainly responsible in cooperation with the government for the crucifixion of Christ. The Sadducees ruled in the temple. The Pharisees had their seat of authority in the synagogues. So the Sadducees were a very progressive group, open to change. Let's adopt to the culture. That was Sadducees. So the Pharisees were really the conservative movement there. And I'll give you other examples of that from the New Testament. I don't think I will. But I want to just take you on a little journey here. Is there not a better description for a faithful, obedient Bible Christian than a conservative? Is that the best word we can find for a faithful, obedient Bible Christian? One who loves the Lord God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and observes to do the things that God wants done in our lives and we come to do his will. Isn't there a better word than the word conservative? Or the word liberal. I think the word liberal is a beautiful word Word when they pass the offering plate. I think that's a beautiful word for all of us to learn from. Being free to, to share. The Bible speaks about our liberality. That's a, in the King James Version. That's a beautiful word. Being preservative is good. If one is preserving a decidedly biblical teaching or position. Otherwise it can be stifling. Or deadening. Or sterilizing if we're preserving something that really is a hindrance to what God's people should be doing. We have to be careful what we preserve. If, if we're going to lock something down and say this we will have and never change, we will be sure we got that from God. We want to be sure that we were careful in how we came to that position. We want to be sure. Be careful what you change. If you're, in a, if you're going to be changing something, be careful about it. Where will this change take you? Where will that take you 20 years from now? You, you'll, you'll never come back to it. Your children will never come back to it. You changed it. Be careful about changing that. Be careful. And be sure that what you're tenaciously retaining is pilgrim Christianity. So I, there I spoke to the danger on the two sides. And want us to be careful about it. And God is neither... Liberal nor conservative. I hope that doesn't shock you too bad. But God is neither one. I'll prove it to you. God is not a liberal. God is not conservative. Why not? Because he's God. Didn't you read that in your Bible tonight? God is the one who establishes the institutions of society. He alone prescribes the law by which all of this is supposed to function. He is the origin of the positions that others may choose to preserve or choose to reform or, in other words, choose to change. He is the source. He's the sovereign. God is sovereign. God answers to no one. God needs to explain nothing. 
You know, when we have this Garden of Eden set up, and it's a beautiful place, and it's an Eden, it's, it's, it's perfection, it's glory, it's health, it's wisdom, it's eternal. This, this garden was an eternal garden. This was going to be a perpetual spring. This was going to be an eternal garden there. And Adam and Eve came in there, and there was a tree in there. And God said, don't eat of that tree, and God did not need to explain it. He said you're going to die. He didn't say why. He didn't give them many reasons for it. He didn't sit them down and give them a notebook and say the numbers 1 to 10. Here are the reasons why. God did not need to explain it. God is God. You don't need this tree. People tell me that the unique practice and teaching concerning the veiling of a Christian woman's head is only found in the Bible one time. God doesn't need to say it more often than that. Clearly said there. Enough said. Anyone that wants to be obedient can find their way there with what is given there. Anyone that loves God, loves His law, loves His word, appreciates what God says, has a heart to serve the Lord. He knows that God's ways are different from this world. We read that last night in First John chapter 2. You can't serve God, serve the world. You must be on one side or the other. Anyone that chooses God... It agrees, as Charles Finney said, with everything that God designs. His heart comes into perfect agreement with the will of God. That's conversion. That's repentance. I don't fight against it. I, I don't say I'll never do it. I said that to my dad. When I was a young man and living in the wrong life, in the wrong place, I told him I'll never do that. Something that he thought I should do. Something he thought would be a right thing for a Christian to do. And I said, I won't do it. But when I changed my heart, I was willing to do what I told him I'll never do. And it was not hard to do it. It was not a cross to do it. It was not a difficulty to do it. It was, it was the no oppression of any kind. It was a joy to do it. It was a blessing to do it. And I still do it. These many, many years later, Still do it. God is neither liberal nor conservative. He is God. And being perfect, his positions and creations and decrees cannot be improved. God cannot improve anything he does. You can't reform it. When God says it, when God establishes it, you, can, you can't make it better. Change it to what? Any change is deterioration. Any change is diminishing from the glory of our Lord. I'm talking about the commandments of God. I'm not, I'm not talking about some things that maybe we came up with. He's perfect. He can't be improved. And yet at the same time that he's perfect in all of his commands. Listen to this. He is also merciful. And being merciful, he commands all that he designs and requires for our own good. That's a very important theme, the book of Deuteronomy. It's in there several times. For our good. Now I want to leave Deuteronomy for a while. I'd like to move into 1 Corinthians, into Romans chapter 8. Just to share a couple of thoughts with you. I'm not so sure it's necessary for us to be either conservatives or liberals, but I am very, very convinced. And biblical authority we have in order to say tonight, 
that we should be spiritual. Be spiritual. Led of the Spirit. God of the Spirit. Under the anointing of the Spirit. In harmony with the Spirit of God. And He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, My Father, Galatians 6, 4, 6. We are spiritual. We, 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 we discern things spiritually. We have spiritual discernment. We have a spiritual mind. We are spiritually minded. We think in terms of spiritual life. We think in terms of a spiritual relationship. We think in terms of a spiritual effect. We think in terms of a spiritual influence. We think of what these things will do to our homes and churches spiritually. What will happen? And we have that discernment. And when we get this mind, this mind of Christ, this mind that comes from God Himself, this mind that loves God, this mind that's in harmony with God, this mind that God infills with His Spirit and blessing. We're in a position to make wise decisions. Think through things carefully. Have congregations that come out at very safe and beautiful places. Because we're spiritual brethren thinking spiritually together. Anything else is carnal. And Romans 8 says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If peace is what we want, we now know how to experience it. By thinking spiritually and making spiritual decisions, both in our personal lives and in the congregation. I don't think God's a liberal. I know he's not that. He's not a conservative. He's not trying to preserve something. He establishes it. He decrees it. It stands forever. His word stands forever. Heaven and earth pass away. My word shall not pass away. God establishes the home. God establishes the governments of the nations. God establishes the institutions. God establishes marriage. God establishes it. How are you going to change it? We come as close to that as we can get. And I realize there's variation. I realize we various cultures or customs or countries might change, might have different understandings of some of those things. I maybe could give you some examples of that, but God's Word doesn't change. We come as close to that as we can. And we can take this book into any culture, into any climate, into any place in the world. And people can read this and they say, Oh, this then is how we should live. It's a beautiful thing. And when we're spiritual, that's where we come out. And with spiritual people, though they are different, though they've had different backgrounds, like the brother was up here last night from a Catholic background, that does not matter. We have many people in our churches with Catholic backgrounds in Costa Rica. But when we come together to this book and come together with spiritual minds, we can think alike and think together, and it's a joy to find our way together as brothers because we have this mind. This mind that is in us, is given to us by God, it's a gift from God, this God. The God of this book, the God of this law, that's what he writes in our minds. It's a beautiful experience to have that relationship with God. Now let's go on. Do we, do we represent the heart that God was seeking for in Deuteronomy 5.29? Oh, that there was this heart in them. Do we represent that? Do we compare ourselves with one another and with the holy law of God? Are we faithfully obedient to what God asks of us? 
Am I found in the presence of God before an open Bible? Living by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God? Is that the way I live? Does God's word speak to me? Am I concerned when I find things in God's word that are not evident in my life? Do I come to the Lord with tears and ask him and beg him to change me? Do I open myself to my brothers in the congregation and say to them, I'm having some struggles in some of these areas. Do any of you have any advice for me? Or am I afraid of direction? I don't like someone to tell me that I need to make some corrections. I remember years ago I was teaching school there in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, the dear bishop brother in that congregation. His name was Brother David. He said to me uh, at the beginning of that first school year, I just was getting started there with those dear people. He said, uh, Brother Dale, you're a school teacher and I'm not. So I want you to go to that schoolroom and you teach school the way you know how to teach. You, 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 just, you just run with it. You just do what you know to do in that schoolroom. We'll give you the right to do that. And if we see that you're doing something wrong or we have a concern about something we're doing, we'll, we'll come and talk to you about it. Is that okay? I said, that's fine. That's wonderful. In the four years I was there, he came two times. He told me he thought maybe I crossed the line, made some mistakes there, and he may have been right. We tried to correct it. But dear brothers and sisters, the book is open, the Bible is open, you want to be faithful to the Lord, you have a sincere desire to seek His face with all your heart. I don't know what kind of Christian life we have if it's not that way. I don't know where we would categorize ourselves. I don't know how we can face the Lord. I don't know what's going to happen under judgment. I don't know then why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't know who told me how to do this. If there's no word from the Lord... And the open Bible. In no time of prayer. And no seeking God's face. And receiving His words. Something is wrong. You know, if I'm not living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God... Who can ever live the holy testimony we have in the Bible if we're not in touch with God? Now I want to say tonight, as kindly as I can and with all the understanding that the Lord can give me, so that you know that I understand where you are, where we all are, I'm going to admit tonight that there is some understandable paranoia among us as churches. I want to explain what I mean as carefully as I can. You may pay attention. Some of the paranoia, paranoia means fearfulness, unsettled insecurity. We sense that there's danger. Maybe we can't identify it, maybe we don't know exactly why it's there, but something in our, in our being tells us that there's a difficulty pending over here, and it concerns us. And we can call that paranoia, that's what I'm saying tonight. Some of the paranoia affecting our groupings of congregations owes its origin 
to a concern for the accommodation to the culture altogether too prevalent in, in some congregations that we are acquainted with. And so we see this over here. We look across to the, across the county or across the township line and over there's a congregation. And we've always appreciated that church, but something's happening in that church. It's happening in that church. And we say, what's going on? And maybe for a while we didn't notice it. And maybe the same thing was happening among ourselves and we didn't see it. Because usually things like that are very gradual. We weren't paying attention. And all of a sudden we woke up to it. And we said, what's going on? And then some fearfulness comes to us. That's what I'm talking about. So if I have your attention, I will take you further. And we may not be able to understand exactly what the causes were that took that congregation the direction it was going, or those groups of people, those groupings of churches, the way they were going. We might not be able to identify it. Because changes like that are caused by things that are very subjective and very diverse matters. And maybe we won't all agree on just what it was that did that. But we are concerned about it. And it's not wrong to be concerned about it. Being concerned is probably all right. Something caused that drift. But we know that we have to avoid it in our home congregation. We know that we can't go there. We know we must do something about it. We know that we must stem the tide. We know that we must take a position. We know that we must hold the line. We know that we must do something about this. And our tendency is to react. Sometimes we desire to fence our people in. To protect them from any deviant or alternate viewpoints. And fortify areas where we see others weakening. Our general feeling is, though we would not want to say it, our general feeling is that we as a congregation, our position is is the safest. Where we are, that's the place to be. Uh, we, we, we are at the right place. It's, 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 it's others that are, are, are struggling and not understanding where they, are, where they ought to be. That's the way we tend to think. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Any other influence constitutes a threat to us. We tend to discredit people. Not because of their lives, the grace of God that's in them, the commitment that seems to be there, the faithfulness to Scripture, their willingness to be obedient. But we discredit them as soon as we find out what particular grouping they are in. We don't look at the evidence, as Barnabas did, of the grace of God that he saw in Antioch. You know, obviously, something's happened to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Something's happened to that beautiful verse in 1 John 1, 7, when this manner of responding to each other takes the upper hand and begins to control how we relate to each other. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 7. Is this the best answer that we can possibly give for our concern for a safe and a biblical congregation? So I'm asking you a question tonight. Can the God of Deuteronomy offer us direction as we chart a course with drifting accommodation on the one hand and rigid protectionism on the other hand? Can we chart a course through that? Do you brothers know what I mean by rigid protectionism? Can we chart a course through that? Is there a safe way to go? Are we going to be drawn off one way or the other? Is it possible to bring our people through safely? Will God provide a path through the Red Sea? Will God open a way for us? Can we find the right way for us and for our little ones, as Ezra says? I want to share a couple thoughts with you about that. The God of Deuteronomy. He must begin with our love for the Lord our God. Our love to do His will. Our love for His holy law. Obedience from love is never legalism. It's never a legalistic thing. When I do what I'm doing because I love God. And because I love my church. I love my brothers. And I'm so glad to be part of this fellowship. It's a blessing to us. We enjoy to be, enjoy being together. There, there's a peace and a blessing among us. We, we just love to meet together. We love to have a fellowship meal. We love to eat together. There, there's no legalism there. When love is the foundation for our lives. It's not hard to do it when we love. It's not hard to do it when we like to be like our brothers. It's not hard to do it when we want to blend and harmonize with our brothers and sisters. It's not hard to do it. It's a joy to do it. A love that is vibrant with life. Anyone can understand. We talked about that the other night. Not just a strict observance in life, but mixed with a doxology, with a gracefulness, with a living vibrancy that people know this is the Lord. I remember one day, this man that came to the house there came up to paint the barn. It was not my barn, it was my brother's, but I was working there, and he was up in the ladder painting, he had a mask across his face, he had a handkerchief across his face. Uh, he didn't come to work in his pickup truck. A driver brought him, because they don't use automobiles, this particular church group, Grothdale Mennonites, from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I thought, what's this, what's this legalist doing up there on the ladder? Look, look at him up there painting, he's got his handkerchief across his mouth so he doesn't breathe in all those fumes. And we had a very good cow die that morning. And I said to the man who's up in the ladder, I'm on the ground. And I say to him, you know, uh, we, we, we had a good cow die this morning, one of our best cows. I don't know why that happened. I, I don't know what God's trying to tell me. And this man looked down from the ladder and said, Mr. Dale, God's telling you nothing at all. You know why the cow died? She got her head caught in that head railing and she couldn't get it loose. And so she died. And God loves you just as much now as he did before. It didn't change God's love to you at all. He, 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 he's still your father. He's going to take care of you. And there's no, this man up here, the lighter's telling me, I thought he was, I'm learning. And so I thought, well, I'll take this conversation a little further since it got started. I said, sir, I said, I see that you have someone bring you every morning. You don't come in your own vehicle. You have to pay him to do it. Why don't you bring your own vehicle? 
Oh, Mr. Dale, I suppose I could bring my own car. I don't think it's wrong for people to drive a car. I don't think it's wrong for people to have a car. But you know, we kind of made a decision as a family that we don't want to make it too easy just to get turn the key and go somewhere. And we just thought we'd put a little a little carefulness there. And, you know, it's just a little protection for our home. And we're very, very happy about it, Mr. Dale. It's awful hard to call it legalism when there's life there. It's hard to call it legalism when there's a relationship with God. It's hard to call it legalism when it's working. It's hard to call it legalism when there's a good relationship between son and daddy. And daddy loves the church and the preachers are, are happy to have you for a member of the congregation. And there's support and it's a joy. It's hard to call it legalism. When it's love. And when it's life. And that, that the God of Deuteronomy teaches us. We choose to do it. It is life and wisdom to us. As Deuteronomy says, this is the higher motive and produces the holy result. I'm going to go a little further about our intercongregational relationships. At home in Costa Rica, we're at Marseilla. We have a little congregation in Marseilla. I have some responsibilities of four congregations there in Costa Rica. But there in Marseilla is where we live. That's not a very big church. Most of the members are nationals. There are very few of us gringos that live there. But we're not afraid to establish clear positions at our church so that our members know what our positions are. This is what we've agreed will work with us and here in our community and here in our setting. This is the way we see that God would be glorified by us obeying the scripture and applying it in this way. We have those positions. And we agreed upon them. And I want you to know that a lot of times congregations have trouble because they make decisions, but the people were not agreed to it. Maybe 55% were agreed to it, but the congregation was not united on it. But the decision was made. But agreed to it means that we work together to get a consensus and bring the hearts of the people together in what we're doing. That's the way we try to do. It's not just voted on, it's agreed upon, and it's voluntary. Because we want to do it. And so if there are other options and other variants... That might be. Others could do a little differently. But we're happy, very, very happy to do it this way. I'll never forget what our sister Amalia, she is a mother in our congregation with five children. And she and her husband have five children. All those five children are, are a part of our congregations. I see all of them at one is married and I just got a phone call yesterday telling me that the one daughter who is still single, who is 29 years old, was just engaged two days ago to a young man that she's been visiting for quite a while and their marriage is planned for later this year and asked me if I could be at the wedding on that particular date. It's a real blessing. Someone came to Amalia, this mother, And said to her, uh, your church here, where you go to church, is that a liberal church or a conservative church? And this dear national sister was an American, asked that question. She did not know, yes, yes, and in Spanish, but our, our mother there did not know what those words meant. Is, is yours a liberal church or a conservative church? And she didn't know what to say. 
Well, I said to her, uh, what did you say then? She said, I, I didn't know what to say. I told her that. This is our congregation, and, and we really like it, and, and this is the way we do things, and we, we don't want to change it. We, we just really appreciate that what we have a chance to do here. We're, we're happy about it. I, I just told her we're very happy to have our church. Well, I said, well, Amala, you answered very well. That's a beautiful answer. God bless you for that answer. She'll think about that for a while, the lady that asked that question. So we have positions. And those some people come among us sometimes whose congregational things are slightly different from our own. It does not threaten us. We appreciate what we have. We agree to what we have. We know what we have. It's clearly understood. It works, it works well. And then I think it goes real well if there is a ministration of grace in that congregation. And God's positions are not negotiable, but sometimes some of ours might be. And in our congregation at home, and I, this might shock you, I hope it doesn't upset you too badly, but in our congregations at home, our, our brothers use beards. But we have in our congregation a Native American, you would call him an Indian, from the country of El Salvador, from an Indian tribe there, and they don't have hair on their face. And his oldest son is very similar to him, and he wanted to become part of our congregation. He came to me in my home and he said, Brother Dale, I, I have wanted for a long time to be a member of this congregation. I've wanted to do that for a long time. But, but I have trouble with, I have trouble with, with the, I, I can't, you know, Brother Dale, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I just don't, I just don't have that. And uh, the congregation talked about that, and they said, as long as he appreciates the positions we have, there's no reason whatsoever why we can't understand that there could be a little difference in this case. That's what we did. I'm talking about now unity in the brotherhood. Unity is always attractive. Others want to experience it. Ruth wanted to know the God of Deuteronomy and be part of his people. She trusted that God. Boaz said that in chapter 2. We know that's true. I think in our congregations there should be clear preaching and teaching. Teaching of the message of life. Every service should be edifying. No one wants to miss the service. Not a time in the service in the pulpit of scolding the congregation of trying to set someone straight. Of trying to offset the last preacher who was in the pulpit before you were. Balancing off his message. Counterbalancing his emphasis. What is the matter? Why are we doing that? A time of blessing, rather. A time of fellowship. I think it's beautiful to have expository preaching. I think it's wonderful in the church service to hear testimonies. Words of blessing for God. And words of gratitude and appreciation to one another. It's very common in our church to hear people stand up front and say, Are we ever happy to be part of the church that we have here? Is it ever a blessing? To hear those national people say that, it's a tremendously rewarding thing to hear. In our brothers' meetings, in our congregational meetings, we learn to listen for what the Spirit is saying through the others. We kneel for prayer, desiring to know what God wants us to do. We're not there to promote our agenda, but to learn from each other. God is going to speak to us in this meeting. We have decisions to take care of. Needs we must meet. God, how we do it? I think there should be, in the congregation, sincere pastoral care. 
like Moses had for his congregation here in the book of Deuteronomy. He walked with God. He spoke with him face to face, yet in meekness and gentleness and in much intercession. He brought his people before the Lord and he blessed the twelve tribes at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and then climbed a mountain and died. The Bible says after that the children of Israel obeyed and did as Jehovah God had commanded Moses. And that is what God wants for our churches. It's not a matter of conservative or liberal. It's a matter of obeying from the heart that form of doctrine was delivered unto us. It's a matter of in love being united together in one accord with one mind. It's a matter of having appreciation and living in harmony with each other. It's a matter of being a testimony to this world. It's a matter of being separated from the wrong and the sin and the deception and immorality and be joined together to the purity of the body of Christ. It's a matter of being one with God and with, with, with each other. It's a matter of having intense love for each other and feeling a need for each other's lives. The contribution that you can make to me and, then, and maybe some others can make to you. This is what God wants. The God of Deuteronomy. It starts with a holy law that came from a holy God and we love him with all of our heart. Can you imagine what happens when a group of people have this love towards God together? Can you imagine what's going on between them? And together we encourage each other to maintain this fervor, this fervency with the Lord. In our church services we do that. I just want to encourage you, don't be threatened. It's right to be concerned. But don't be threatened. Bring your people to the cross. Bring your people to the God of the Bible. Bring your people to the Holy Word of the Lord. Bring your people to love and to unity. Bring your people to one accord, to, to, to agreements. Bring your people to love each other. Bring your people to eat together. Break bread together. Wash feet together. Share the cup and the bread together. Baptize. Receive into the church such as should be saved. Let's bow our heads. Father, can you take the varied situations that are represented tonight and speak to each need in each heart, at each pastor, each congregation? And give us, Father, intense love and respect and appreciation for each other and not feel the threatenings, not feel that some of the variations are going to undermine Help us, O oh God, in the context of love, biblical integrity, and fear of God, to hold forth a standard that all men can see and realize this came from the Lord, this came from the Bible, without being ashamed of standing for what we have come to appreciate in love that you have showed us. And help us to learn from each other. Help us to be humble enough to realize we don't understand it all. Help us to not think that our local positions are the best that there are. Help us to realize that people have lived closer to God than possibly we are doing today and learn from them and open our hearts to each other so we can benefit by any improvement that you want to bring to us. 
Would you bless our churches? I don't know how many different groups are represented here tonight or throughout this tent meeting, but would you bless the congregations gathered together? Those who are listening, those who are yearning, those who long to draw closer to God, would you bless them? Every heart here tonight who sincerely and conscientiously is seeking the face of God and whose heart is turned towards you in regards how ignorant they might be and how far from your pilgrim path they might be walking, would you draw them step by step into the holy awareness of your presence and light and give them the mercy they need, the grace they need to find their way from wherever they are starting to wherever you would have them to go. Minister to the souls of men and help us in some small way to encourage them on their journey. And may we as churches here in this earth remind people, make people conscious of the presence of God. Make people conscious of the presence of the Holy One. That we're in this world to make people conscious of God. The God of the Bible, the God that's holy. And the God who loves. And the God who cries. And the God whose heart bleeds for our needs. And the God who intercedes. And the God who prays. And the God who provides salvation. But the God who judges sin. That is not not voluntarily recognized. Help us, O God, tonight. Receive these truths into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.